You're listening to Jeopardites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. My guest in this episode is Dr. Andre Asiman. Andre is a memoirist, essayist, and New York Times best-selling author, and currently a distinguished professor of comparative literature at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. His first book was a memoir called Out of Egypt, which details his childhood growing up Jewish in post-colonial Egypt. In 2007, Andre published the New York Times bestseller Call Me by Your Name, the story of a sudden and powerful romance that blossoms between a Dalson boy and a summer guest at his parents' cliffside mansion on the Italian Riviera. What grows from it is a romance of scarcely 6 weeks, but an experience that marks them both for a lifetime. For what the two discover on the Riviera is the one thing both already fear they may never truly find again. Total intimacy. In 2017, Call Me by Your Name was adapted into a widely acclaimed film directed by Luca Guadagnino and starring Armie Hammer and Timothy Chalamet. In 2018, the film was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars and ended up winning an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. which was written by acclaimed writer James Ivory. In the upcoming follow-up to Call Me By Your Name, titled Find Me, Asiman shows us Elio's father, Samuel, on a trip from Florence to Rome to visit Elio, who has become a gifted classical pianist. A chance encounter on the train with a beautiful young woman appends Sammy's plans and changes his life forever. Elio, on the other hand, soon moves to Paris, where he too has a consequential affair, while Oliver... now a new england college professor with a family suddenly finds himself contemplating a return trip across the atlantic now asiman is a master of sensibility of the intimate details and the emotional nuances that are the substance of passion find me brings us back inside the magic circle of one of our greatest contemporary romances to ask if in fact true love ever dies this episode is one of my favorite conversations ever where Andre and I talk about why he was drawn to writing these characters again and why he chose to tell the story from three different perspectives Sammy's, Elio's and Oliver's and he also made my day by giving me some great advice on how to write believable characters and emotions which you'll hear at the end of the episode Andre will be speaking at JLF Toronto this weekend on September 28th here is my conversation with Andre Asiman Now that you've done all the work, all the writing obviously has been done and and this stage of the process starts where you're supposed to help pretty much sell the book. Uh how do you how do you deal with this stage of the process? Well, it 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 could be fun because there are parts of it that are in fact fun and I I enjoy the public i cannot pretend that i don't like the i do love the public i love public events i love q and a from the audience particularly mm-hmm. from the audience um and i enjoy because i'm a gabber as you probably know <laughs> i i like to talk and i improvise and then i contradict myself and then I, but it doesn't matter because i think that people ultimately enjoy the presence of one on one and i like to give people the one on one even if it's an audience of 500 people everybody gets something that feels 
personal because mm-hmm. that's the way I can speak. I don't know how else to speak. I'm not a politician. So I don't chastise or chasten my language so that it sounds okay on TV. I, I just say what comes to my mind and um, sometimes I'm intelligent and sometimes you won't believe it. I can be extremely <laughs> You know, that was uh, one aspect of your, when you were at Jaipur Literature Festival this year, I was actually in the audience just because I wanted to be, although we, I was working the entire five days to produce the podcast that we do for them. But uh-huh. your session, I was like, I, I, I got to sit in there. And then I get there, I was up at the press terrace and I get to the session and it's already like 20, 20 minutes before the session when they're about to start seating people, it's already full. And the line to get your book signed was already 60, 70 people. By the time I think the session started, there was about 150 people uh, just to get the book signed. And I just, I wanted to know what it was like for you to to come to India for, for the Jaipur Literature Festival. And how were you, how were you feeling of all the attention that that the book and, and, and you, the person, were getting? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because whenever I quote um, a completely stirring uh, public response, I always go to Jaipur. That is the one place. <laughs> I don't know how many people were sitting in that audience. Was it 600, 700? I, I cannot tell. But oh, it was probably, yeah, oh, probably a thousand and counting all the people that were standing. And there were a lot of people standing around. Yes. And basically, I... I started speaking to the group, to the public, and I made a few New York jokes, typical New York jokes, <laughs> because it's my way of gauging whether the public sure. knows me, understands English, or understands even this kind of weird New York humor. And they were all laughing as soon as I made a stupid joke. So for me, it was a moment in which I realized this is a wonderful public. They're with me. They are sort of they understand everything. Um, and in fact, you know, as you probably know, Indian writers know English better than English writers. Uh, it's, it's, it's a truism at this point and certainly better than American writers. Um, so I felt amazingly sort of connected to the public. And I did four events in Jaipur. Um, it was fantastic. And I think I've never had a group. I have had big groups, but I've never had a big group where everybody was so keenly hanging on every word I said. Mm-hmm. And I think the who interviewed me was also wonderful. So everything went fast. So whenever I want to say, and there were a lot of young people, amazing people there with their parents of all things. So I, I felt... I felt very connected. There was a moment, I, I want to let you know from the audience's perspective that happened during your session. You said this thing about, um, I wrote it down so I can quote you. You talked oh. about this idea of uh, the shame of wanting someone else, especially yes. someone you possibly will never tell that you desire them. Because, I mean, you were talking about calling me by your name and the process of that. And I must tell you, in that moment, when I was in that audience, that was the moment where the entire crowd fell silent for a good four or five seconds. Because in when you said that thing, you immediately made everyone go in their memory bank and think of that memory where they felt that shame, possibly the, for the first time, because so many, like you said, students were there, teenagers sitting in the audience yes. who are the characters, uh, you know, they, they relate to the Elio side of the story. And 
it took them about five seconds to acknowledge what you said, completely think of that time in their life, and then one person started the applause just to make everyone come back to reality. <laughs> I, 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 you know what? I've said this thing about shame because I truly believe it. I totally believe it. But I was not aware that somebody had started the applause just for whatever reason. I don't remember. Yeah, that that was what my acknowledgement because, I mean, it happened to me too because... You know, there's this thing about um, as, that writers can do to us, and I'm sure you can relate because this is what you've studied and, and been teaching. They're able to make us feel something or at least validate something that we had yet to put into words. And they, once someone does that, and this is something that people, you know, with your book, people, so many people quote things that uh, Elias says, things that Samuel says, because you're able, you're giving them an acknowledgement of a feeling, and I, I guess my question from that is like, how does it feel when, when something you wrote in isolation, years later, or or even moments, uh, even when I mean people are going to read Find Me, they're going to have a whole bunch of quotes to come from there. How does it feel when people tell you that this thing that Elio said or this thing that Samuel said? Um, was validating something that I felt when I was, you know, 17 or when I was at that age. Oh, you mean you no longer feel it now that you're older? Come on. Oh. I think we feel it for oh, yeah. the rest of our lives. <laughs> in fact, put yourself in my shoes when you're my age and you suddenly look at someone and you say, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You feel the shame immediately. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, but, you, you know, it's very strange because I've always said that you know, any writer, but particularly a decent writer, will put into words things that are not new. They're just totally, totally familiar. You see, it's the kind of thing that you could say, I could have said that. The mm -hmm. point is you never quite said it and you never quite considered it. So that when you hear it, it's not new information you're getting. It is the familiar in you given back to you. And that's I think, the job of a writer is to basically seem to take a risk by saying something that's outlandish only because the writer knows that everybody will say, but that's true of me as well. Right. I don't think I'm not that I'm not a very courageous writer to say things that no one has felt before. That's not me. I say things that I know every single person in the audience has felt. Maybe never acknowledged, maybe never considered, never articulated, but they felt it. I'd like to go a little bit back in time. Uh, when you were when you were studying literature, um, your bachelor's and, and, your, and your master's and PhD program, what were the kind of stories that you were drawn to at that point in your life? Um, I think that for the past, since I started, I started teaching in my second year of graduate school. Mm -hmm. And these were my years when I was at Harvard and specializing in comparative literature. And I had just finished rereading Proust that same summer. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered was that I was only interested in psychological fiction. I don't mean Freudian, Jungian. I was interested in writers who basically excavated and examined or anatomized how people behave and how they are motivated. 
Um, that is why I always went back to Stendhal, who is one of my favorite writers, and to Dostoevsky, and to many writers who will not tell you very, very complicated stories, but they are focusing on what is it that moves someone to think and feel and do what they do. Uh, that is what interested me. And I think ever since then, whenever I had a tutorial, I was always assigning books that had a psychological component uh, or an analytical component, if you want to use that word, mm -hmm. because I was no longer interested in plot. I hate politics in fiction. I couldn't care less about families that are dysfunctional, where one person is an alcoholic and the other person is addicted, the other one is sick in the head. I don't care about that. I just want people who are more or less normal, which doesn't mm -hmm. exist, of course. But people who are on average okay, uh, talking to each other, but at the same time having other motivations than what a simple conversation is. Uh, and for me, dialogue is very important, and uh, not theatrical dialogue, the kind that is constantly sort of skipping, but just the dialogue that reveals a particular um, inflection of personality. Mm -hmm. And that is all I teach. I've always taught psychological fiction. Uh, sometimes I, I find, for example, Henry James, who is alleged to be psychological, to be sometimes not as deep as he could have been. And I find Tolstoy, another writer who's supposed to have fantastic characters, I find him, you know, facile. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are judgments that I may change my mind about, but I've always thought it and I always react to certain writers by kind of dismissing them because they don't have the analytical bent that I am seeking. And if I seek it, it's because it's something I want to do better. Mm -hmm. I learned from other writers. Do you feel that over the years that you've been um, writing and, and teaching as well, do you think there are some aspects about you that as a storyteller are pretty much, um, I guess, they're the foundation of you? And are there some aspects that you keep adding on as you grow as a, as a writer? Like, I'm, I guess the, my, my question is that do you think there are things in you that have stayed the same uh, your entire uh, writing career? And are there things that have evolved over time? Well, I can try to answer that question. It's, it's basically the heart of all questions that you're asking me. Um, the, the, the real answer is that I believe that my experience in life has always been to feel slightly um, dislocated or unhinged or not quite belonging. I don't belong to a country, I don't belong to a religion, I don't belong to the various places that I thought were going to be my home. Um, so I've, I've kind of been dislocated my whole life. And this dislocation um, has also manifested itself in my own personal life. In other words, not just in my experience as a person who had to be in Italy for a few years, then France, and then the United States, but also in my professions. I started going to graduate school to become a professor, then I changed my mind, I became a stockbroker, then I became a, an advertising person, and then I went back to my career as a professor. Um, so I've done many things, 
And I've also had many kinds of loves in my life. So there are variations all over the place and never anything that seems to feel at the very root of it stable. So to use the word I've been avoiding, there's a sense of exile that permeates everything about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just exile from Egypt, it's exile from history even, exile from current events. I don't read current events, I don't read newspapers, I don't read magazines, I don't read contemporary authors. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of out of the loop constantly. Everything I find about myself, it's always doing something else uh, or feeling slightly out of sorts with the rest of the society in which I am. Um, I have wonderful friends. They all happen to be slightly off as well. That's why we get along. Um, But I think that is the thing that has remained consistent. So whether I write a book like Out of Egypt about a child who is basically going to be exiled from what is around him, uh, seemingly a perfect society for those people, Uh, or whether I write a book of essays, or whether I write a book like Call Me By Your Name, you always find it's the same exact inflection in each one. Someone is desiring to be in a place or with a body or with any kind of thing and not quite able to connect with it, finding difficulties around. Sometimes you overcome those difficulties, but they reassert themselves right away. Sometimes Elio will find that he can have a relationship with Oliver, but it cannot last. Sometimes I find that I love Rome. I would have loved to have lived in Rome, but it didn't last. It's all the same Mm -hmm. sort of what you might call, I hate to use the word exile, but it is that thing. You can be exiled from a society. You can be exiled from your own body, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. There is is an aspect of... Just coincidentally, this this week I've been working on this um, this story that I'm writing. It's a it's a radio play, and so it's just two people talking. And I'm I'm particularly finding myself writing in the well. The characters are seventeen, eighteen, and yes. I'm glad that I get to talk to you about this because of uh, the impact that even Elio as a character has had on um, being able to tell that story of of that that period of your life. And uh-huh. I've been thinking about this part that, so now I'm 30, I actually turned 30 like three days ago. And I wanted to pretty much feel like, what would it be like for me to forget the last 13 years of adulthood so that I can think like a 17 year old again? And I wasn't sure if that was the right approach because in terms of especially Elio in, in Call Me By Your Name, he's telling me a story from from earlier, now he's older, but he's telling me a story of what happened and he's giving his perspectives and all of those things. And I've, I guess my, my, my little um, inquiry here is, how do you forget all the experience you've had as an adult when you are writing in the voice of a, of a 17, 18 year old? Because they haven't gone through what you have gone through. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. Are these individuals attracted to each other? Yeah. So the yeah the story is about the end of a relationship at that particular point because it's the biggest relationship you've had when you're and if you break up at seventeen, you know, 
the entire world is that relationship because what else do you have to do with your life? So I'm writing about the end of that uh, relationship and exploring uh, that idea. Well, can I give you the obvious answer? The one yes. that I truly, truly believe is true. <laughs> uh, it's basically, you don't have to do that sort of somersault into the past or mm -hmm. twist yourself and forget. No, you're just writing about the end of a wonderful relationship as it would happen today in your mm -hmm. own life. Uh, I think there is nothing changes from the age of, I don't know, I, I think we're the same at the age of seven, eight. Um, I think I started desiring people at the age of eight, not knowing exactly what I wanted. But mm -hmm. you're the same until you're 80, I believe. You don't change. The dynamic is the same. The rituals are the same. Uh, the modes of desire are identical. You, your libido may be more functional at 17 than it is at my age, but the desire factor is always there. And so I, I believe that nothing changes. So you don't have to say, well, I don't know how a 17-year-old would think. Just mm -hmm. think as a three-year-old, and that will do the job. Right. Um, I mean, I, I believe that strongly because that's how I wrote Call Me By Your Name. Right, I didn't right. have to myself into a man I mean I was past my 50s when I wrote it and clearly the the sexual urges of a 50 year old are not exactly the same as a 17 but ultimately it's the same thing mm -hmm. so um, now that we've 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 talked a little bit about call me by your name I do want to talk about find me because it's hard to talk about find me I believe to <laughs> without talking about call me by your name uh, cool. I'd love to know how you, so you started writing this book from what I've read in terms of what you've talked about it, the, the movie, when it came out, it, it, it brought back all those feelings that you were not able to, I guess, let go in terms of these characters and these guys, these, these, these people were coming to you again. And once the movie had all this success and everything, how do you think that that the world acknowledging the existence of this story and, and embracing it so well, how do you think that affected the process of you creating this, this next chapter? Actually, this is the irony. It's, it has very, very little to do with the movie. Um, I had, as soon as I had finished Call Me By Your Name, I had to finish another novel, and then I jumped into yet another one uh, after that. And then a third one came along. Um, but all along I kept trying to write a, I was not, it wasn't a sequel. It was more, how do you fill in those years? What do you do mm -hmm. passage right. of 50 years? And so I was constantly thinking how to do this and I was trying. And I mean, there were massive attempts at, at trying to reconnect and it wasn't working and it was all wrong. And it happened to me at some point when I was taking a train from a town that is so associated with Call Me By Your Name in my mind. They invited me to that town to give a talk. And I went there and then I was taking a train back. And on that train, as I'm working on another book, um, a woman with a dog sits next to me. 
and immediately I thought of Chekhov's story, you know, the lady with the lap dog. And, uh, and we started talking. And I said, my God, what an interesting woman this is. Mm-hmm. She got off stops later. She called her father. It was his birthday. And that immediately sort of stirred me in such a way that I began writing the story of Sammy at that moment. Uh, in other words, I was completely taken. I was finally inspired. I didn't know it was Sammy, but soon mm-hmm. enough I realized this is the life of Sammy. He's a grown man. Uh, and then, of course, the, the rest of the story began to take shape. And I realized that I was not going to write the life of Elio. That is way too long. Mm-hmm. But I want to capture a moment of Elio where he's both a musician, a lover, a person who thinks about things that are not clear at first and that have one level and then another level. It's a San Clemente thing played out on the cadenza by Mo, by Mo, on, on, for the Mozart concerto. And one thing led to another. And then the Oliver piece was just a natural thing to write about. And, uh, and then the final star stuff, which I don't like to discuss because it's a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have to go into spoilers because I, I want to read the book. <laughs> the, the first book, not related to the movie, the first book does give us the, the 20 years later from that major portion of uh, what the book is in. It does give us that the epilogue in a way. Were you, when you wrote that portion of the book back in, in you know, 2006-7, did you... Yeah. You must have done the, the what happens in those 20 years in your mind to get to that part in the book, in a way. Yes. And so when you, when you did decide to write this book, did a lot of things come back from what you had thought of back then? Or were there aspects that you completely found yourself changing? Or I guess... In a way, some new aspects of these characters just came out because you hadn't really thought about them back then. No, actually, um, whatever I said in the Call Me By Your Name, in those 20 years between their saying goodbye to each other and mm-hmm. uh, find each other, um, there were a few hints along the way, like you know that uh, Elio in 20 years has met people, has fallen in love with them, has even displaced the importance of Oliver in his life because other people came along and they were both men and women. And that was one thing. You also know, for example, that when Oliver meets um, Elio in the classroom, mm-hmm. he thinks that maybe they had a connection somewhere else. He doesn't recognize Elio, and he assumes that maybe he met this guy somewhere. And it, it, wanted, it was my way of suggesting that uh, Oliver's life was not entirely um, clean of uh, sort of what you might betrayal to his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an element of that that I wanted people to be aware of, but I never went further. Now, when I wrote this uh, Find Me, I didn't want to go back to that. That was already stated. Right. Um, I, I didn't. I mean, it, it, it was already hinted at, and that's good enough. I just wanted to capture one fundamental relation that he has with someone who's much older than he is, and who uh, has a fantastic personality, and uh, obviously opens door for him, mm-hmm. and at the same time cannot compete with the memory of uh, Oliver. This um, this aspect of, I mean, the Call Me By Your Name is from Elio's perspective throughout. 
the from what I've read about Find Me, we're 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 dealing with three perspectives, I believe. There's Elio, there's there's Oliver, and there, there's Samuel. Are you writing in I'm assuming you you wrote in first person for all three of them, right? Correct. Because wow. I don't know how to write otherwise. <laughs> so one one major aspect of um Call Me By Your Name for me was especially uh, when I was listening to the audiobook, which was really weird because I heard it after the movie. Uh, uh -huh. And then, you know, Army Hammer is voicing everyone, which was weird because he's, he's explaining his own attraction to himself in a way. Um, yes, very, very well. I had the same reaction. I think a lot of people have that initial reaction. Then they get used to it and yeah. they move along. Yeah, the first yeah the first hour you realize okay this is he's a narrator he's not talking about himself. Um, when when the scene that every people loved it at JLF as well you did the reading where you talked about that that speech that the father and son the moment they have at the end of the, of the movie. Yeah. When I saw that scene in, like in during the movie, I my first thought was. I had no idea this is this that this person was so interesting. I mean, and I and I don't mean that in a I don't mean that as some sort of an insult to the character. I mean that I immediately was like, oh, what kind of life has this guy lived? Yeah, I want to hear that story. And when I found out that you were you were writing Find Me and Samuel was going to be a big part of it, it, it got me really excited. Uh, and I wanted to know what it was like to. To write in that multiple perspective uh, and jump around was it was it something you gave yourself as a challenge, or you just felt like this is the only way this story uh, is going to unfold because of how you had envisioned it? Um, I had, um, you know, it's funny because when you write in the first person, you begun you 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 identify with the character automatically, mm -hmm. and then begin to think the way he does, you begin to do things that he would do, or you hesitate the way, you know, Sammy would hesitate. After all, he's older, he's with this woman who's much younger, and he hesitates because he knows maybe this is, this is just a fantasy. And um, so you go with that. Um, you, don't, um, you don't plan. I never, never plan what's going to happen in a story. It's a story that has to basically tell me what seems realistic, given the starter of the story, mm -hmm. and uh, and I, so that uh, there was no plan of what would happen to Sammy. But Sammy's personality interested me because he's an older man. Um, he's not old; he's just older, and he at the same time he is open-minded, as we know he's been. And what I think happens in this story, which I love, is that at that at some point it is Elio, and I don't want to spoil it for you. It mm -hmm. is Elio who gives his father advice. Mm -hmm. I I do consider Call Me by Your Name to be one of. I'm I'm a big you know movie. I I like writing. I like movies. I like everything, and reading. And I think it has one of the best titles uh, that you can give to a story because it immediately wants you to explore the story and I think find me in a way it's the perfect title to the next part because you know there is something that a character is feeling that that title is exploring and um, I wanted to know and this is this is again from the the writing geek in me to 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 get from you because I have you here um, 
the thing I mentioned to you that I'm, I'm writing these radio plays, uh, I'm actually about to start auditions for the plays that I've been writing and they're all going to be these, uh, we're going to make them into a podcast as well because that's, you know, the future of radio plays now and they're going to be these audio dramas. So this is my first time having people, I've always resisted um, people performing my plays. I always write stories to be read, not to be performed. Uh, and in, in about in a few days, I have to start picking people to fit into the characters that I've written. And I don't know how to feel about that because, and I, and I, I wanted to get your, your take and your advice and your, however you felt, because, you know, you wrote the book, uh, and the, the time between the first book and the movie was about 10 years and then yeah. now there's this other there's this new book and it comes after the movie and people who are going to buy it they're going to they're going to hear the actors in the voice and i mean i i believe uh michael stuhlberg is doing the audiobook as well so the voice yes. of the actors is going to be very close to the voice of the characters especially for the audience and i wanted to know what it was like for you to to have these people become your your words and now you're writing them again like how has that affected you because like are you able to remove the act the actors and their faces and their voices from the characters um in find me yes when it comes to call me by your name every time i try to think of who elio is i see timmy mm -hmm. and when i think oliver i see army i no longer recall what my characters looked like but in Find Me, they're much older, so they no longer look like Timmy, and they no longer look like Michael Stolberg. And mm -hmm. seriously, uh, the, the character who plays Oliver no longer looks like, you know, the Oliver. Um, mm -hmm. He's totally, in fact, I don't see my characters very well. I, I, when I was writing the novel, I remember thinking to myself, should I, should I tell, I mean, when I was writing Call Me By Your Name, should I tell the readers uh, that Elio is blonde, or should mm -hmm. Elio dark skinned? Um, what kind does he have hair on his body, or doesn't he have hair on his body? So I couldn't decide. So fundamentally, I don't see my characters. I I I have bad sense perceptions of them. I do have a sense of what their soul is like, and that's really what interests me. You when you were talking about that you like the idea of radio plays. I just wanted to know because up until now, I had only been writing things that people read. And that was, I was very happy with that. I mean, I've, I've been doing it for a while. And now I'm only writing for the radio play format, which wow. means that it's only meant to be heard. And yes. that has, especially the story that I just mentioned to you, the 17-year-olds the who are having a breakup, I wanted to tell it not the breakup to each other. They're not discussing the breakup with each other, but they're going back home and they're discussing it with their friends, which completely changes how they're feeling because they're expressing it to their friend and the guy's going to be more, you know, he's going to try to be more guy about it and the girl's going to be different. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to know what you, what you think of that idea, though, of the format in a way affecting how you write because of how the audience is going to interpret uh, the story, and I, I was just wondering what your what your thoughts are on that. You know, the audience sometimes 
is more right than the author. And I can give you a quick, a quick example. When the father has the dialogue with his son, and he tells him that, blah, 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 you should really let yourself go, feel the pain, blah, blah, blah. And he finally says, you know, I could have had what you had, but I never did, and it never happened. And he said, but, you know, past the age of 30, you will feel less attractive to other people, and so on and so forth. At some point, the son asks, does mom know? Remember mm -hmm. that moment? Yes. Now, in the book, what I meant to say, does mom know? Does mom know that I was sleeping with Oliver? But the audience around the world has said, no, that's wrong. What he means is, does mom know that you could have had a gay relationship? And that blew my mind because I had never considered, it had never even crossed my mind. And suddenly I realized, of course, the audience is right. That makes more sense than what I had said. Or the, the, the reason. So sometimes what is unplanned by an author turns out to have a logic, perfect logic of its own. Now, you're writing a play. I love radio plays because uh, what I do love about a radio play is that your attention is totally focused on it. You could be staring at a fire in front of you and not realizing that it's <laughs> the, the fire because this is the kind of consummation that a radio play has and I've always loved your plays because you're totally riveted to them you don't need to watch anything watching is distracting actually um, so in, in point of fact if you can have the dialogue between them it doesn't have to be extensive the audience will infer that he's mm -hmm. trying to be a strong guy about it uh, because that's how guys are when they talk to guy friends. Mm -hmm. They're not sort of reveal their vulnerability and they probably don't reveal it to the girl either. It is for the girl to say it or for the friend to question his being manning up about right. it. So it, it all the, I believe that the greatest revelations are usually made obliquely. In other words, someone else will say something. Remember when the mother says in Call Me By Your Name, oh, he's so he's just a timid boy. <laughs> yeah. Last thing you expected Elio to think that Oliver is a shy little creature, you know? But you need the advent of another person mm -hmm. who is significant to just basically move the story along. I, you know, I, I just realized that when you mentioned, uh, when Elio asked that question, does mom know? I had never thought of it the way you said the audience was thinking. I had also thought that he's, that he's asking, does mom know about me and Oliver? Yeah, well, right now he's discussing, you know, this. The father's admission is insignificant. But for the audience, it was extremely important to see that the father, too, might be gay as well. And so that sort of creates a moving dynamic, which, you know, the author never anticipated. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah! Uh -huh.